The Barbary Bush and Eight Other Stories for Girls by Susan Coolidge. What the Pudding Brought. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Barbary Bush and Eight Other Stories for Girls by Susan Coolidge. What the Pudding Brought. It was the midnight of the Christmas vigil. Not the cold, brilliant midnight that we want to associate with the Holy Eve but soft and black, with mild airs moving in from the sea, and a misty moon struggling through faint clouds. On the cliffs, the surf laps and broke with deep-toned murmur. The high chalk downs above still wore a garment of turf, almost summer green. Greener yet was the trimly-cut grass where tiny bone church lay buried in tree shadows so deep as to shut out every ray of moonlight, and all the lovely, lovely isles of white seemed wrapped in a deep repose of universal sleep. Not quite all, half a mile away from Bond Church to Moon, peeping through the yews, revealed a knot of dark figures collected under the windows of a small house, and presently, after some preliminary notes on a tuning fork, voices broke forth in a Christmas carol. These were the waits, beginning their tuneful round. They had come first of all to Mrs. Durkey's, because of her lodgers, American ladies, to whom the custom might probably be a novelty, and thereby provoke a larger dole than the performers were in the habit of getting from more accustomed listeners. The American lodgers were not particularly charmed to be thus roused from their first sleep by strains which, though well meant, were rather the reverse of harmonious. Good gracious, what is it? demanded Eileen, the first to wake. Then her clouded senses gradually clearing themselves. Emmy, Emmy, she cried. Do you hear the noise? It must be the carol singers. Oh dear, why did they come? protested sleepy Emmy. I was just so nicely asleep. But she sought out wrapper and slippers in the dark, and presently joined Eileen at the window, from which the waits could be seen standing in the shadow of the yews, with their music books and lanterns. No unpicturesque group. Another moment, and the inner door opened, admitting Marion, the third and older sister of the trio. What are those horrible sounds? she asked. They woke me out of a sound sleep and such a nice dream. I thought we were at home again and spending Christmas at Nestledown with Auntie Rue. It's too bad to be waked up. I should like to sleep all through tomorrow and keep on dreaming. Where are you, children, and what is this extraordinary warbling? Hush, Marion, and come and listen. It's the waits. Dear me, why couldn't they wait till tomorrow? They look rather pretty, too, out there in the moonlight, admitted Marion, peeping over Emmy's shoulder. But why don't they keep better time? There. Did you catch that high note? Half a tone flat. And what is the instrument that tall man is playing, which makes such extraordinary discords now and then? A flute, I think. Only it's always three quarters of a bar behind the voices. What a droll old custom it is. I object to it altogether, said the fair stately Eileen. What right have these, well, very doubtfully musical people to come and wake us up without saying, by your leave, and remind us of the thing? We were doing our best to forget. You know, we agreed not to speak the very name of Christmas, even, or give any presents or do anything different from any other day of the year. We didn't reckon on his crotchetous and quaverous, remarked Emmy. What's that? That was a low knock at the door. Ladies, do you hear the carols? asked the voice of their landlady, modulated to a cautious whisper. Why, of course we do, Mrs. Durkey. How can we help hearing them, said Marion, with rather an exasperated accent in her voice. The music waked us up, said Emmy. 
Mrs. Durkee, are we expected to give something to the singers? You must tell us. Well, it is usual, admitted Mrs. Durkee. Eileen, could you lay your hand on your purse in the dark? I think so. Yes, here it is. Ten minutes later, the waits departed, made glad with half a crown, and the sisters were again in bed and more than half asleep. The morrow dawned grey and misty, and was made additionally cheerless by a drizzling rain which soon began to fall. The little sitting room, which the sisters had taken so much pains to make homelike on their arrival a month before, was at its worst always in such weather. The sea view, its chief advantage, was blotted out, and Mrs. Durkee's chimneys never drew well with a southeast wind. The tree breakfasted almost in silence. Emmy looked pale. Eileen was evidently in low spirits. Marion suggested church, but Emmy was not up to the rainy walk, and Eileen would not leave her. Mrs. Durkee came for the day's orders. Her contented rosy face and Merry Christmas rather jarred on the homesick tree. Don't for Peter's sake order anything unnatural for dinner, said Eileen. Let us make the day as unlike Christmas as we can. I don't think I could bear a feeble imitation of the home holiday. The only way is to forget all about it. Yes, if you only can, put in Emmy from her sofa, with something like a sob in her voice. In a moment, Eileen was on her knees beside her. Fragile little Emmy was the pet and best beloved of the other two. After all, we had the best thing that Christmas could possibly bring us, cooed Eileen, stroking the soft hair. You are better. Yes, I think I am a little, admitted Emmy. Marion, meanwhile, held her housekeeping conference in the entry. You like to have a turkey today, suggested Mrs. Durkee in a persuasive tone. No, I think not, racking her brains for prosaic suggestion. Chops, I think, Mrs. Durkee, and a sole, if you can get a fresh one, and a cauliflower with white sauce and mashed potato. That will do very well. Dear me, it's not a bit like a Christmas dinner, in a disappointed tone. And for the sweet cause, Miss Wren? Well, said Marion, I think we won't mind about that today. None of us care much for sweets. Mrs. Durkee looked deeply, darkly doubtful. She shook her head and seemed about to speak. Then her face relaxed, a little sagacious smile shone in her eyes, and she departed without saying more. The day went by, as hard days will. There was a good deal of laborious cheerfulness in the party. Eileen practiced stoutly on some difficult music. Marion read throat Caesar aloud to Amelia. Neither of the three said a word about the far-off home of which all were thinking. Toward night, the rain ceased, and Marion, leaning out to close the blind, announced the moon to be visible. Don't let's dress for dinner, she said. We are all so comfortable as we are. But I think her object was to discard even so commonplace and observant to make the day, as it were, even less than ordinary days. Dinner came up and was eaten with an accompaniment of chat, which grew happier now that the dreaded holiday was fairly past. The white cap maid removed the plates and swept the last crumb from the table. There is nothing, Marion began, but at the moment the door opened and in came Mrs. Durkee, her face bright with fire, her eyes in triumph, and in her hand raised aloft a dish on which flame a small but symmetrical pudding, surrounded with blazing brandy and topped with a towering sprig of red-berried holly. Ladies, she said, I took the liberty of making you a Christmas pudding in our English way, and I hope you'll excuse it, and accept with my best respects. It was a shock, but noblesse obliged, and after a single moment of consternation, the rants roused to the situation. What a beauty of a pudding, cried Eileen. How very good of you, put in Emmy. We are so obliged, dear Mrs. Durkee. Well, I couldn't seem to bear your spending the day so dull-like, responded Mrs. Durkee. 
Christmas isn't like itself without a pudding to my thinking, and my mother, she always felt so too. This is a recipe, and it has got all the things that ought to be. What do you mean? asked the puzzled Marion. Oh, I don't mean plums and such like, ma'am. Every pudding has them at all seasons of the year. But the Christmas pudding is the only one, you know, which has the ring, the sixpence, and a thimble. What? The ring, the sixpence, and a thimble, ma'am. It's for luck, you understand? The sixpence means money, you know. The one of you that gets that in a slice is sure to have some at left in the course of a year and a day as a legacy-like. The ring means a husband, of course, and a thimble is poverty. Ah, Miss Wren, you're laughing, I see. But I've no need to come true more times than one. The pudding seldom misses. I call this exciting, said Irene. Now, Mrs. Durkey, carve the pudding for us and give each a slice while I open this bottle of ginger ale. We must all drink one another's health in honour of your wondrous present. The pudding was carved, and Mrs. Durkey, nothing low, sipped her glass of foaming ale, while the sisters curiously explored each her slice with a fork. I have the ring, said Eileen solemnly, and I do believe, yes, here is the sixpence, declared Emmy, fishing the hot little disc out daintily from the burning sauce. I am to be the rich one, it seems. I have nothing at all. That seems hardly fair, pronounced Marion. At that very moment, her fork encountered a hard substance, the thimble. Well, that is the most curious, cried Mrs. Durkey. I never before heard of all three things being drawn, except there was a large party and the whole pudding was served. Well, I'm sorry you've got the thimble, Miss Rand, but there's some sorts of poverty that is as good as riches, they say, and I hope your sort will be that kind. What a good creature that is, remarked Eileen after she had gone. We didn't want a pudding, and we didn't mean to have a pudding, but after all, I am glad she made us one, if only to show what a kind heart she has. The English are very nice, I think. So they are, and it was a really jolly idea to put those things in. I never heard of such a custom before. It makes a plum pudding really interesting. It is all very well for you who did not happen to draw the thimble, remarked Marion severely. I am not sure that I find the pudding so interesting. Porty Cobb is an old acquaintance. I don't care to have him freshly introduced to me. Altogether, what with the surprise and the fun, the pudding was a great success, and the Christmas in lodgings ended much more cheerily with the Rand sisters than it had begun. The next week drifted by, and now it was the twelfth night, a festival with little meaning to American years. With the Rands, the day was chiefly remarkable for the expected arrival of a belated American mail. Marion went to the post in the afternoon and returned rosy and elated, with quite a bundle of letters. Three letters for you, Eileen, two for me, and with a lot of newspapers. And for you, Emmy, this thick blue envelope, which looks business-like. I wonder who could have sent it. Then she tore open her own letters, and soon became too much absorbed to notice the faces of her companions, till a double exclamation caught her ear and made her look up suddenly. Marion, what do you think? The pudding has come true, cried Emmy. Oh, Marion, the pudding! See what has come of it! exclaimed Eileen at the same moment. Then they stopped and regarded each other with wondering eyes. What is it? demanded the astonished Marion. I don't know what Eileen's news may be, but listen to mine. Only think, I drew the sixpence, you know, and here is a letter from old Mr. Wickham, the lawyer, to say that Cousin Amelia Storrs is dead and has left me twenty thousand dollars because of my being named after her. Twenty thousand? Why, that is news, cried Marion. Why, my darling dear, now you can go to the Rivera just as we wished. How delighted I am. 
You will get well there in just one minute, I am sure of it. I need how clear you look. Have you had a fortune left you too? No, not a fortune, replied Eileen slowly. I didn't draw money, you know. I drew the ring, blushing most beautifully. Yes, well, what is it? What are you going so red about? Eileen, speak. Don't keep us in a suspense. Girls, said Eileen, I'm going to confess something that will surprise you a good deal. You won't be vexed with me, will you? Promise in advance you won't. Very well, we promise. Only make haste and tell, said Marian, on fire with curiosity. Well then, when Jean Chauncey went to China three years ago, I promised to marry him whenever he was able to come home and ask me. The sister stared at her speechlessly. It seems mean never to have let you know, went on Eileen rapidly, but it was a very far away sort of dream to me. And just then, just after you sailed, came the beginning of Mother's long sickness. And then Emmy fell ill, and there seemed so much to think about and worry over that I couldn't bear to add this to the rest, or make you feel that I had any hopes or plans apart from yours. And in fact, I hadn't. It might be for years, or it might be forever, for all I could tell, before Jim would be in a condition to claim my promise. But here he writes that all is suddenly changed. The New York partner of the firm is dead, and they have decided to send Jim back to his place. He will have an ample income, and, and in short, we must go home, dears, as soon as the warm weather is fairly come, and is safe for Emmy. Jim will reach New York in June, and he wants to be met, I mean, to see me as soon as possible after he lands. Well, I never was not quite so flat in all my life before, said Marian, recovering her speech with a sort of gasp. One such surprise in a day would be almost too much. Two is too utterly too. You wretched little humbug, who would have ever suspected you were of secreting an engagement all this while? But you were an angel of unselfishness not to mope and not to tell us, giving Eileen an energetic scream. It would have added to our worries dreadfully to feel that you only half belonged to us. It was just like you, Eileen. So it was, added Amelia, drawing her sister's fair face down for a kiss. Oh my, Ellie, how bewildering it is. I rich and you engaged. I shall always believe in puddings for the future. Marion is the only one left out. Don't despair. It wouldn't surprise me if some man all tattered and torn made his appearance at any moment, said Marion. Besides, she has half of all we have, said Eileen. Half of Jim Chauncey? Thank you, replied Marion grimly. Solomon himself will find it rather difficult to effect that amicable division. No, my dears, poverty is my portion. Witness the fatal thimble, and I am quite content. Great was Mrs. Durkee's surprise, and great her triumph at learning what wonders her culinary spell had wrought. Her satisfaction was only marred by the tidings that her lodgers must leave her soon. They had decided on San Remo for the spring months, and indeed, I would never have made any pudding at all had I guessed what it was to cost me, protested the good landlady. But you will write and let me know what comes to you, Miss Marion, won't you? Something will before the year's out, depend upon it, and I've right to hear. Don't you think so yourself now, ma'am? Of course you have, and you shall hear, promised Marion. But spring and summer passed, and autumn was well under way before a letter with the American postmark came to satisfy the good landlady's curiosity. It bore date, New York, November 12th. My dear Mrs. Durkee, so it ran. I hope you have not forgotten us or our promise to write. I meant to have done so before, but I thought you would be too disappointed to hear that the pudding charm had in my case failed and produced nothing at all until lately this seemed to be the truth we got home on the twenty ninth of may 
and just a month later my sister Eileen was married. She is settled now in her pretty new home and is very well and very happy, and hopes you got the cards she sent out to you. Emmy, who you would like to hear, is quite strong again. Spend the summer with me in Colorado, which is the most beautiful country you can imagine, with such mountains and park-like valleys and such air as cannot be described. Colorado, you know, is a state in the far west, almost as far from New York as you are in the Isle of Wight. Now we are come eastward again, and we are staying with Eileen for a little while, until... Here comes my news, and as you will see, the pudding was a true prophet. Until I am married, as I expect to be on the 10th of next month, to Mr. Robert Ramsey, whom we met at Ed's Park last July. He is a ranchman, that is, a sort of sheep farmer, and I'm going back with him to live in Colorado. Our house will be pretty rough for the first year or two. In fact, it is a sort of cabin, built entirely of wood and partly of logs, with no paint or plaster, and I suppose would seem rather poverty-stricken to some people, but we hope to improve it in time. And meanwhile, we have beautiful hills to look at and a splendid climate, which together with youth and fair prospects make a very pleasant sort of poverty, as I think. So you needn't be at all sorry for me, or regret the pudding, for if I could put that timber back again with a wish, I assure you I wouldn't. And I'm not only contented, but proud of the fate it has brought me. My sisters join me in kind regards, and I am, dear Mrs. Birkie, yours most cordially, Marion Rand. The blessed young thing that she is, ejaculated Mrs. Birkie, wiping her eyes as she finished the letter. Well, let folks that will doubt that old saying about the pudding, I never shall again. It's made my young lady's fortune, true as life, and I mean to keep on with the ring, the sixpence, and the thimble as long as I live. End of what the pudding brought. Recording by Jade from Washington.